Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with Hema Raghavan and Scott Meyer of LinkedIn. Hema is an engineering director and uh, responsible for AI for growth and notifications. And Scott is a principal software engineer. Hema and Scott, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm very glad to to be here at LinkedIn uh, and looking forward to our conversation and digging in to some of the things you're doing with graphs for machine learning, empowering various uh, LinkedIn features. But before we dive into that, uh, I'd love to introduce our audience to you. So mm-hmm. would you take a, a minute to share a little bit about your background and how you got started working on graphs and, and machine learning? Hema? Okay. Um, so I've been in the field of machine learning for several years now. I got my PhD back in 2006, uh, largely focused on search and information retrieval. I've worked in advertising. I've worked in question answering systems at uh, uh, IBM, uh, IBM Research in particular. And then uh, when I came to LinkedIn, I came in to actually work on content, on content recommendations. And I spent a year doing that. And um, I realized that one of the fundamental assets that LinkedIn has is the underlying social network. And that's where content propagates. And I got really interested in uh, the problem of uh, building the graph, in particular, uh, thinking about algorithms for people you may know like problems or follow recommendations and so on. And that's what brought me uh, from the general area of search and information retrieval to graphs. And it's been four years and I'm still having fun. Fantastic. Fantastic. How about you, Scott? Well, let's see here. Um, I guess the story starts, I, I did relatively well in the dot-com boom and actually quit for three years to go sailing. <laughs> And at the end of that, uh, I was semi-reluctantly looking for a job, and I bumped into this company called MetaWeb, and they were like, hey, uh, we want to build a world-writable graph of all common knowledge, and by the way, we're going to call this thing Freebase. And I was like, wow, I would really regret not taking that job. So I wound up leading the storage team at MetaWeb. MetaWeb was acquired by Google. Uh, Freebase became Google's knowledge graph. Um, spent four years at Google working on knowledge graph infrastructure. I think the best summary of that is Google and I disagreed about graph databases. Um, but LinkedIn found me actually through LinkedIn, which was a huge endorsement and, um, recruited me to come here and lead a next generation graph database project. So that's what I've been doing for the last four and a half years. So it's like 15 years in graph databases now. Can't, can't shake the habit. So we're going to go deep into graphs and the way LinkedIn uses them. We spoke a little bit about uh, this with a, in a previous interview with uh, Romer, who's one of your colleagues, Hema. But we'll dive even deeper here. Mm-hmm. But to kind of contextualize that for us, talk a little bit about the motivation for the emphasis on graphs at LinkedIn. Yeah. So the social network for LinkedIn, we are an online professional social network. The fundamental asset that a user has on LinkedIn, perhaps in even comparison to our competitors, Indeed, or any of the other job sites, is the social network. 
So in that context, a graph is the prime driver of all of the other parts of our business at LinkedIn. In particular, if you can just think about it intuitively, it makes sense that when you're looking for a job, um, the most common thing for you to do is actually reach out to your first degree connections. Uh, if you are in a job that you like, you'd like you might want to uh, stay informed. Uh, through what your first degree connections are talking about. And that's pretty much what your feed does. And if you are likely missing out on a conversation, then your notifications are what are sent to you. And notifications from your first degree connections are more valuable than uh, otherwise. So at all stages of your professional network, your connections are your core asset. And that's the core of what uh, LinkedIn offers. So uh, in terms of the set of AI problems that surround uh, graphs is first building the graph itself. So when a member comes in, the most primitive way that a member would build their network is go by memory and think about all of their colleagues that actually exist on LinkedIn and go and do a search. Now, you would not you would not get a lot of coverage that way. I would probably not remember colleagues from 10 years ago when I'm building my network. So that's when a recommendation engine like people you may know comes in. Likewise, uh, for the feed, then um, how do you know which of your first degree connections are actually relevant to your current context? So I may have colleagues from school, from three other jobs before, but maybe the conversation that I really care about in today's context is deep learning and AI. So which of those colleagues are contextually relevant to my feed? So that's also a graph problem. We can think about it as affinity modeling amongst your first degree connections. Likewise, if you're on the jobs page, then which of your connections are relevant to you and who might potentially give you a referral, right? So all of these are graph problems. They can be modeled as prediction. They can come down to prediction problems given a certain context. The people you may know problem is what edge should I build? And that is most relevant for the member. And then the other problems like feed, notifications, or jobs say I have the member has a set of edges. Which of these edges are most relevant in that context? So that's uh, graphs are everywhere at LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is is clearly already doing this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you think about the big challenges or opportunities in this space and among the various features that you've talked about, people yeah. you may know in the feed, what are those big challenges from a machine learning perspective? Correct. When I think about uh, graph problems, I actually think the challenge as compared to other recommender systems is often scale because uh, in the limit, a lot of these problems are N squared. So if you have a graph that's 500 million members, then you're looking at N squared of that. So there's no way that you can talk about some of these problems without having a distributed systems expert co-seated at the table with you, which is part of why we're at in this conversation today mm -hmm. together with Scott, right? So in fact, that's the one piece we realize that even when we're training the models, like just thinking about network propagation algorithms or about inference on these large graphs, uh, there is 
a community, a research community out there, but it's not as prolific as perhaps, you know, uh, other fields of AI, for example, text and LP have broader communities. Mm -hmm. And it's perhaps also because uh, the problem space is rather niche. Mm -hmm. So those are the biggest challenges. The, uh, the lack of large data sets for academia to publish research that necessarily we can directly leverage from. So oftentimes we are pushing the boundaries internally ourselves. And there are few problem spaces which sort of intersect so closely with distributed systems and AI. Scott, how about from your perspective, what are the the big challenges in addressing this scale? Yeah, well, uh, interestingly, uh, I had a conversation with a recruiter when I came in, and he said, look, the magic in uh, in LinkedIn is in the second degree. That is, in it's in connections that you could have, but probably don't. So, for example, any problem that you're experiencing, probably there's somebody in your second degree who has solved it or who knows more about it than you. Um, and you may not know this person. Um, uh, conversely, with the first degree, like mostly you already know it. Uh, it's, you know, top of mind. Um, from the standpoint of data, a second degree is very difficult to work with, right? Because it's, uh, it's big. Uh, the way it got big is because it changes rapidly. Uh, so if I talk about storing first degrees, this is very easy to do with a key value store. Um, however, uh, if I were to try and materialize second degrees, uh, the data footprint would be huge and the right weight would be enormous. Um, and so there isn't a simple brute force solution to working with a second degree. So one of, one of the key things that a graph database does, probably the defining thing is joining. And in particular, we join two first degrees to put together a second degree. And we have to do this interactively in real time. In, in talking about graph databases, where does the graph database sit in the process of kind of serving up these graph-based features? Is it um, kind of at the at the end of the chain, you know, close to where a, a page is being rendered, or is it kind of early in the chain, um, you know, a, serving up the models? A, uh, certainly, uh, our online uh, we are an online service, so mm -hmm. it's fundamental to LinkedIn. Uh, if the graph is down, LinkedIn does not display web pages. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you'll see it all over the site. For example, graph distances, how far apart you are from someone you're looking at. That's computed out of the graph. Um, so uh, the the graph itself is definitely online. Um, the uh, the graph, the contents of the graph, some of it is raw data that is curated by directly by users, and some of it is the result of a, a relevance or AI process uh, where we take data that may be unreliable and figure out uh, what's good. For example, filter out spam. Okay, and so is it is the graph a single monolithic system, uh, an instance of a graph database, or are there multiple systems that contribute to making the graph real for the graph is an is an instance of a graph database we actually have uh seven instances in four different colos to to actually provide a continuous service and the instance of the graph database itself is a cluster of machines um roughly 20 terabytes of ram per cluster and is this a linkedin 
kind of internally developed graph database, or is this it is a, a completely an open source project? Or this is a complete uh, internal project. It's it's built. Uh, it's an in-memory database. It's built on top of basically bare Linux. Okay. Oh wow, wow. Um, and so <clears throat> you talked about uh, Hema. You talked about across these different capabilities, the the common thing that you're trying to drive for across the graph is is relevance, some mm-hmm. aspect of relevance. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, affinity modeling is one yes. of the types of uh, technical approaches that you're applying. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So let's take affinity modeling uh, uh, for the people you may know problem, and then we'll talk about it in the context of some other problems. Um so the people you may know problem says, is A likely to know B? Mm-hmm. and But we also want to consider long-term value. So if A may know B, but if they're not going to derive value from on LinkedIn in any potential future, right? Like, is it worth connecting to your neighbor down the road? Like, should we be showing it, it's someone you know, but using a top slot in a recommendation system for that versus perhaps somebody who might be a good uh, referral for a job for you down in the future. Or someone who may share um, really good content, like someone that you know, but they just write really well and you would benefit from their writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, these so you can think about predicting future edges or predicting so what we're doing is actually predicting future edges right is uh is hema likely to connect to sam um and so is hema likely to send an invitation to sam and is sam likely to accept that invitation so you have to know that you know hema knows sam and sam also knows hema so it's a two-way problem and uh but you want more than just that edge in building building that edge in itself. You want to be able to predict that once Hema and Sam connect, uh, what's the likelihood that they're going to interact? And interact could be in the context of a job. Interaction could be in the context of the feed or a notification or some other context. So affinity turns into a predictive problem. You can generalize it to are you likely to interact in some context in the future? And uh, how likely uh, is a person likely to accept an invitation from a person and derive value from that? So those are all the broader problems that we're trying to uh, solve when we're building edges. So one thing that comes to mind for me in thinking about that is you've got this graph database that is... Presumably, you're capturing the the nodes, which are the people, Mm -hmm. uh, and some aspect of the relationships, the the edges. Mm -hmm. But you're also, when you're making these predictions, are you then taking the high likelihood predictions and then putting them into the graph database? I guess I'm trying to reconcile the graph as this kind of existent thing Mm -hmm. that's captured, you know, concretely in a database and this predicted thing that you know, doesn't exist? And, and, and when does it get uh, kind of materialized into the database? Got it. So the existing graph is the existing set of members and their connections, and it can actually be richer than that. You can have nodes 
in the economic graph of LinkedIn. You can have nodes that are schools, companies. Uh, you can have edges that people follow. So that rich database in its current state. So if you take a snapshot in time, that's what Scott's team built serves for all of LinkedIn. And then what we do is, given that snapshot, how do we query it to get the potential second degree? These are people who are not connected to each other. And then potentially even third degrees for uh, low degree members, because uh, if your second degree is too sparse, we might want to walk the graph out mm. a little more. So we look at uh, the second degree, the third degree, and then we and that itself is huge. Even if your a few of your second degree nodes have 30 odd connections each, that can blow up in computation. So we take that large list and then we say all of these people are not connected to each other. Which ones are likely to connect to each other? And that's the predictive problem. And that's what you see on the people you may know or even follow recommendation pages at LinkedIn. And once people start sending invitations, so uh, in the bidirectional edge is a connection edge. So when they send an inv invitation and it gets accepted, it materializes back into the database. A follow recommendation will materialize right away. And so Scott maintains the state of truth of you know what or uh, of what connections have been accepted as well as what follow links exist. Okay. I see the people you may know uh, page mm -hmm. all the time, yeah. and you certainly wouldn't want to recompute that every time I'm going to see it. So it needs to be cached in some kind of way. Is it cached outside of the graph database? That's also a graph. Why not put the potential uh, kind of secondary connections into the graph as well. like, And it is kind of a turtles all the way down kind of problem. That's a very right? good question <laughs> because uh, the the assumption around, uh, you know, uh, could we take a state of the graph, a, ta a, a time and point maybe uh, once a week or once in every end days and then take the second degree network and then actually build recommendations and cache it in some kind of key value store uh, was the premise uh, with which LinkedIn built uh, the people you may know system for several years. But something we discovered uh, in more recent years was that uh, network building is contextual. So when people say people don't necessarily engage with uh, a people you may know application or as a daily use case, but when they do, it's long and deep sessions. And say if you joined a company and you connected with your manager, if we could in real time then explore the uh, second degree network from that new connection itself, right? Then you start exploring nodes around that company, around perhaps you know, uh, the team, you will start discovering some of these patterns and people go down PYMK and they go click, click, click. And then mm -hmm. if we can actually refresh those results in each subsequent scroll based on how we're walking that graph, uh, we actually discovered that we can uh, show significant improvements in member experience. So actually uh, walking the graph in near real time has been one of our um, internal discovery, so to speak. The fact that we can actually do it and the fact that uh, it gives huge improvements in experience and performance is, has been one of the key insights in recent times. 
And it strikes me that there are significant kind of systems level challenges there. Is that in your realm or is that? Um, yeah, I can, I can speak to that. <laughs> so I think uh, traditional uh, graph processing, uh, something like Pragle or GraphX, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the notion is I'm going to process the entire graph. Uh, and if you're going to process the entire graph, um, the the way that you serialize the graph is really important um, because serial I/O, you know, when you can read disk blocks in order, is much much faster than random access. And uh, so, a lot of graph processing focuses on uh, clever ways to serialize the data and the processing uh, so that you do the the most efficient processing. The tack we've taken is: what if we used random access, right? So um, for random access, you've got to be in RAM. Um, your, your basic uh, problem is how fast can I get something from memory into the CPU? So you're, you're counting L3 cache misses. Basically, every, every link that you follow is an L3 cache miss, at least. Uh, that would be if you followed it with a pointer. Um, in practice, we would like to we would like to follow links in constant time. It's a little bit more expensive. Uh, we typically average out between two and three L3 cache misses. Uh, so uh, by building a system which can do this, you can now use edges pretty much the way you use pointers, pretty casually, and you can do uh, say online materialization of a second degree uh, in real time. I'm not sure that this is a direction that I really want to go down, but, uh, you know, when you're talking about kind of optimizing around caches and and avoiding cache misses, there's a whole emerging field of like baking machine learning into the low level infrastructure here to make some of these predictions for you. Is that is that something that you're? Are you there yet? Uh, I've, I've, Are you thinking I've, about I've it? I've heard of that. Uh-huh. Um, uh, what what I do is a lot more boring. It's it's really nuts and bolts. Uh, retrieve data, figure out if it's the data that you want. Okay. Uh, you know, pretty pretty boring database stuff. Okay. Okay. A lot of the challenges for building machine learning systems at scale have to do with kind of the the data pipeline and getting that in place before you even get to modeling. Does having access to this graph database alleviate all of that for you, or are you still wrangling with data pipeline types of issues? So um, data pipeline issues exist definitely for modeling, because oftentimes models are still built offline. Prototyping is done offline. I mean, a a graph database comes in when you're actually serving. Mm -hmm. So one of the pieces around making data pipelining easier has been uh, what LinkedIn calls productive ML or pro ML. And we have actually facilitated tooling to become uh, much more easier for uh, data scientists to actually build prototypes. Now, that said, uh, we uh, have also started thinking about how do we make computing graph features? Because if uh, uh, you have uh, a data scientist who wants to try a slightly different variant of a second-degree algorithm, because we talked about a very simple version, which is get or get me all the second degree nodes but if you want to think about it as a probabilistic random walk and you want to weigh the edges in terms of by a model right like how close people are based on some of these affinity models that we talked about uh, how would it 
be easy for a data scientist to not have to worry about scale. So, you know, can we just uh, provide an interface, a simple, maybe Jupyter Notebook-like interface to actually query these kind of databases? So we've actually, we've, we're working on these and that makes the life for our data scientists easier. So, uh, and that definitely takes away the data pipeline issues or the scale issues. And when you get to to modeling, can you talk a little bit about the modeling, the types of models that folks are building to solve these types of problems? Are there, you know, a few kind of go-to models that you apply broadly, or do you customize the models very deeply for the specific types of problems you're attacking here? Yeah. So... Uh at the uh, very basic, uh, oftentimes for any kind of affinity modeling, we would start with the simplest class of models, decision trees, logistic regression, and so on and so forth. Uh, that said, uh, we do find benefits in uh, deep learning-like models. So there are some, uh, there are uh, uh, this published literature, uh, in particular, there is a GraphSage algorithm uh, that came out of work from Which algorithm GraphSage. GraphSage, yes, and that has come out of uh, uh, Stanford and Pinterest. So we've uh, done variants of those. We see uh, certain um, advantages to algorithms of that nature. So uh, deep learning. Uh, definitely is one direction we're pursuing. Um, another direction is just personalization. So how do we think about different users who are in different stages of career building? You may be a new user and uh, you may be building your graph and what LinkedIn calls a novice member. So you're more tentative to send out invitations. You're uh, showing you somebody that you're likely to connect in that context makes a lot more sense. So knowing uh, the stage of the user, the degree of the of connectivity of the user and the life cycle of the user is particularly important. And likewise, for someone who's very well connected already, the additional value of a connection may be much lower. So how do we find that one connection that that person's missing? So personalization uh, is something that your uh the simple models like logistic regression would not achieve. So we get to more advanced models like, uh, uh, you know, mixed effect models. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'd like to explore some of these. So GraphSage, what's that trying to do? So GraphSage looks at, uh, uh, so most deep learning models have, uh, if, you th if you think about uh, uh, the body of literature in uh text processing or NLP typically looks at sequences of words. There are a few models that actually t uh, look at general graphs, right, for deep learning. So essentially what GraphSage is trying to do is similar to what word to WEC or might be trying to achieve, which is trying to learn a representation or an embedding. But it takes into account properties of the node and it takes into account the graph structure. So, uh, for example, you may be a sparsely connected node, but connected to one densely connected node with very rich profile features. Can I actually infer some properties about the sparsely connected node, which with an incomplete profile from the densely connected? 
uh, node. So actually looking at network propagation, looking at the structure of the underlying graph is uh, the class of algorithms that we're going after. Okay, so thinking about it as a graph embedding kind of approach, you're, um, you're building a model that is finding relationships ultimately between the nodes mm-hmm. that um, such that in this embedding space, nodes that are close together have similar yes, properties. exactly, yeah. And then you also mentioned mixed effect models. What are mm-hmm. those? Yeah, so as in, uh, I, the way I want to uh, sort of generalize that class of models is um, how do I learn uh, models that are, uh, are specific to certain groups and groups that are learned automatically? Right, so uh, you, we can think about it as uh, a logistic regression is a simple linear, like simple formula, which does not necessarily consider uh, int- effects of the the viewer, so the member that's being for whom the recommendations are being uh, rendered, the or uh, the imp- the. Or, or doesn't take into account personalized features of the items being recommended, right? Mm-hmm. Or you would actually have to hand code these uh, deeply into a logistic regression model. But m- classes of models that can actually learn uh, subgroupings of people and learn those interactions between the viewer, that is the, for whom it is being recommended, and the items that are being recommended, and learn interactions between them. So is it fair to think of it as almost conditional clustering? Like you're, you're clustering condition yes, on who's a specific to, node or something? Or The other way people can think about it, these are also hierarchical models. Like in more classical statistical statistics literature, you can think of taking all of your feature data and actually building clusters. So, you know, you think about, you call it conditional clustering, but just building these groups and then almost uh, learning a separate model for each group but uh, not having to hand code these groups by themselves, letting the model info what these groups may be. And then we jumped into some of the more advanced models that that I I wasn't familiar with, but in thinking about the application of kind of your linear regression Mm. and and other basic models to graph uh, types of data, is that are there unique kind of challenges or approaches to doing that, or is is it kind of pretty standard to the way you do a, a linear regression on more simple uh, types of data? Yeah. So the challenges for a simpler model would often be uh, just the volume of data we have for training. So just processing all of that data. Um, can often be a challenge. The other part is feature computation. So if you actually were computing something like just a number of common connections between two nodes, that can be a pretty heavy computation you have in an offline system like Spark or uh, MapReduce. Um, And the other piece is the online serving. So actually inference is can be a challenge. So if you're actually thinking about uh, how the PYMK is rendered, we talked about near real-time candidate generation. So what what happens is if Sam comes to his PYMK page, we have we need to look up features for Sam, but then we may have 
uh, a few thousand candidates to rank for Sam. So then we have to look up the fee all of the features for those few thousand candidates. So then we're pounding a key value store at our peak QPS for that many candidates. Then you start hitting, uh, again, systems challenges to actually retrieve all of those features at that rate. Uh, so both at the data munging side for just offline analysis or feature engineering, some of these graph features can be computationally uh, uh, complex and we you're doing a lot of large joins so we actually become smarter at the way we do joins just simple uh, sequel like big joins don't necessarily work that well for us at the scale that we're at and then again online inference is the other piece in terms of those joins scott what does work <laughs> oh what does work uh, I think the the two problems with uh, with joins are are um, query planning. Uh, so typically, if you talk about a graph, it's represented as a table of edges. This is uh, very very easy to do in any SQL database. Um, however, uh, when you start to query it, you're doing self joins. Uh, and the problem with self-joins is that the optimizer is based on statistics. And after your first round of projections, you no longer have any statistics. Uh, uh, this gets exacerbated by the fact that graphs tend to have a lot of skew in them. That is, some nodes are very, very dense um, and others are very sparse. And so um, basic techniques like, oh, I'll just take an average, uh, don't work very well. Uh, you know, you can be looking at things, oh, this guy has 200, 150, 113, 25 million, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if, you, if you have to look at 25 million things, you have to pay that price. But uh, if you're in a complex query, maybe you don't have to. Maybe that um, highly skewed node will be knocked out by some other condition. Uh, so you need a, uh, an optimization framework that can uh, respond to that problem of skew. Um, and then, uh, so, so this typically shows up in offline jobs where you have a hot, you have a hot shard. Every, all the other shards are done and one shard is just spinning at hundred percent CPU or it runs out of Ram. Um, that's a very, a very, uh, typical problem. And, uh, the query planning we, we solve, uh, with a dynamic planner rather than a static planner. So typical SQL database, you give it the query, it looks at the statistics of the tables that are referred to, it comes up with a plan, and then it just executes the plan without change. Uh, what we do is uh, we look at the query, um, look at the sizes of sets, which we can uh, determine in constant time, um, and we do the cheapest thing. And then we see what that's done to the sizes of sets and we do the next cheapest thing. Uh, so if we're pursuing a cheap branch and it turns out to be expensive, uh, we'll go look at other cheaper things. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll change the query plan uh, in, in midstream, as it were. Hmm. The, the hot shard problem that you were mentioning, is that something that you deal with uh, kind of operationally? Or is that something that the... Does this kind of dynamic um, element of the, the underlying platform know how to deal with that? It's something that would, I mean, so uh, in, in, in uh, Liquid, the graph database, it's something that our planner handles. Okay. Um, so it's a problem that we don't have in the, in the online world. Um, in the offline world, uh, it's, it's just a thing that can happen. 
right? Uh, you know, so so very often people are grumbling about their offline job not finishing, and oh well, we need to give everybody more memory, or we need to uh, fiddle with the the query plan for for this particular um, thing that we're computing. Um, it's it's just a you know a bad thing that can happen. <laughs> and when you say fiddle with the query plan, how much of that query planning is kind of hand tuned like that versus um, you know, the system is creating the query plan? Uh, it varies a lot. Uh, there are the tendency is for for things to be more SQL like, uh, where the somebody else figures out the plan. But mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are still writing handwritten uh, MapReduce jobs where you are actually, you, you know, the 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 human programmer is is figuring out a plan uh, that the the computer program will exit, and you know the programmer has to realize. Hey, if I want to talk about people who are following Richard Branson, I probably don't ask about the the shard that has Richard Branson. I probably ask all the other shards, like, "Hey, if you're connected, if anybody that you have is connected to Richard Branson, uh, I want to do some stuff with that." Right. So um, that's a, uh, a a typical way to work around that problem. Is that type of thinking natural for the kinds of engineers that are working on these problems, or is there a lot of education and? Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think it's natural for anyone. Uh, <laughs> uh, graph databases, it it takes a while to. Uh, there's no top or bottom, uh, so I, I've I've always seen it takes at least six months for for people to come up to speed on the on the domain and uh -huh. and really start being productive. Sounds like the new concurrency, right? It's like <laughs> something you just have to wrap your head around. There's this fog, and eventually you come out on the other side of the fog, and it kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm curious about if you're seeing anything happening on the hardware side of supporting graph databases. It's, it strikes me that there's maybe an analogy in um, you know, there are a number of companies going at doing machine learning in silicon and one of the big innovations there is you know the way we we do a lot of machine learning you know via tensorflow and pytorch and the like is by you know constructing computational graphs so let's build silicon that you know is better suited towards computational graphs as opposed to linear instruction sets you know now we're talking about graph databases I don't think I've heard of like a graph server or a graph hardware that's kind of tuned for supporting graph databases. Do you have you heard of that, or and do you think that may be a I, thing at some uh, point? I mean, honestly, uh, uh, from my standpoint, hardware has has steadily gotten worse. Uh, instruction <laughs> pipelines are longer. Uh, okay, people tend to focus on. Uh, well, if if you can do serial I/O, um, then it's much much faster. Uh, they want things to fit in the L1 cache. So the 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 sweet spot for for modern hardware is I have figured out how to chop things up into small enough pieces that one piece fits in the L1 cache, and then I can use uh, you know vectorized operations uh, really fast. Uh, that's absolutely wonderful. Unfortunately, that's not what a graph is. Mm -hmm. A graph is really random access, right? Um, there's no easy way to sort a graph. Uh, so, for example, if I'm storing edges, uh, well, the edge has, say, three fields, you know, a subject, predicate, and object, uh, I have to sort in one way. So if I sort by subject, I can find all of your edges very easily. Um, but when I start looking at objects at the other end, it's unsorted. 
right? So um, you really cannot escape uh, the need for random access. And unfortunately, um, um, modern processors are very heavily pipelined and don't handle random access very well. So you do you envision a hardware that's better? Have you come across that? I think people are doing the best they can. Uh, uh-huh. It's 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 very hard and expensive. So you know we have L1 memory. Why don't we just make L1 be like all of the RAM? Uh, it's it's very expensive to do that. Hey man, when you think about the, you know, a lot of the challenges that we've been talking about are challenges that arise from kind of the scale at which LinkedIn is manipulating graphs and applying machine learning to graphs. Not a lot of people are operating at that scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about kind of scaling down this kind of problem and like, you know, getting started thinking about applying machine learning to graph types of problems, you know, what are some of the things that people can do to to explore this area? There are definitely uh, lots of graph data sets out in the public domain. Um the Clue Web Corpus is a web graph in its Clue Web. Clue Web. Okay. Uh, there are uh, academic publications that reference uh, protein interaction networks. You can think of those as graphs as well. So there's lots of embodiments of graphs in different subdomains. The set of problems that uh, come to mind often is uh, it often boils down to link prediction. Like, uh, does a link between A and B exist? Another problem that actually many companies, in particular financial institutions, uh, are generally interested in is interaction graphs, but thinking in terms of the problem of abuse. So the general problem of link prediction has many applications, both in, you know, the in the public domain as well as, you know, which uh, the niche, uh, you know, corporate domains. So I think thinking about uh, newer classes of link prediction problems that go beyond random walks, uh, bringing uh, embedding-like algorithms, uh, basically deep learning algorithms, but that can operate at uh, scale. So basically, how can we distribute the processing? Thinking about distributed graphs is itself a uh, hard problem. The other piece that we didn't cover too much about, but I think for uh, folks who are academically oriented, I would actually think about how do you do uh, A-B testing on a graph? Because in some sense, nodes are not IID when you expose a node to a particular treatment, its neighborhood is impacted too. So a very nice theoretical problem may be just, you know, taking a look at how we might actually do experiments mm-hmm. on these graph structures. So IID, independent, identically distributed. Yes. So where's the, what's the missing part of the the academic literature in this so area? What the, so, be, uh, so think about uh, this. Today, when uh, most companies do A-B testing, or they definitely, they partition their user base uh, into mm-hmm. random buckets, right? But uh, when your users are connected by links, right? So for example, let's take the example that you and I are connected and you share an article and I 
view the article. But mm-hmm. if we're in two different uh, buckets for an A-B test, uh, I'm not really independent of you. Right. So that assumption completely breaks apart. So how do we actually uh, tackle this problem? I think that's something you can study even in a smaller graph in a more uh, in a simulation like framework so i would you know mm-hmm. sort of love to toss that problem out at the academics scott any requests uh from your part for the academic community <laughs> oh uh, i i think um i don't i don't really have requests you were talking about you know how do you process this at small scale and yeah, I, yeah. I i think one of the one of the insights here is um it's actually pretty economic to have a lot of ram uh uh-huh. right and so if i was if i was wanting to do uh, graph work at a smaller scale um where small probably means you know up to 3 terabytes uh i would just focus on a single machine and uh use uh use ram uh it's i think you can buy a a, a one and a half terabyte machine from dell at the rack price for 20,000 bucks 25,000 mm-hmm. bucks it's it's really quite economical and if you didn't have access to Liquid, what graph database would you be exploring? Uh, that's a harder one. I, I know the guys at uh, Franz who, who build Allegro Graph, and I think that's, uh, uh, to me, probably the most interesting of the extant graph databases. Well, Hema Scott, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me. Thank you so much for having us here. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.